Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Still, I will be fascinated to see how this all plays out because if this sticks, that... Jonathan Cantor shifts us to a more EU-style view around competition as opposed to just consumer harm. That will eventually become a really big deal, especially for companies that uh, traffic in consumer data or large collections of data or you process it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special edition of Compliance into the Weeds. This week, Matt and I are joined by Mike Volkoff, We take a deep dive into antitrust issues under the Biden administration and tie them to the Microsoft attempt to acquire acquisition Blizzard. It's a fascinating exploration of a cutting-edge area of law. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of Compliance into the Weeds. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We brought our colleague Mike Volkoff on. Uh, Matt and I were both interested in the Microsoft Activision Blizzard acquisition uh, from the antitrust perspective. And Mike is an antitrust guru, so we thought we might bring him on to talk generally about antitrust, and then we'll uh, take a look at uh, what the Biden administration might do to Microsoft and Activision. So with that long-winded introduction, first of all, gentlemen, welcome. Hello, Tom. Well. Hello, Tom. Thank you so much, you guys. Uh, I am really uh, honored to be here with the Brain Trust um, with compliance into the weeds, and uh, um, I appreciate the offer. So, Mike, we had a speech by uh, Assistant Attorney General John Kantner last week where he laid out some new, uh, not concepts, but perhaps uh, recalibrations of the antitrust divisions, uh, the Department of Justice's antitrust divisions. I wanted to maybe go through some of the points that I uh, noted from that speech, and I think Matt also noted some points, but uh, could you start off by explaining uh, when there's a divestiture or a remedy, what's the difference in a behavioral and a structural remedy? Well, that's, a, and and he did spend some of the time talking about that on his speech, and there are basically two uh, two sort of approaches to, let's say, a merger that in terms of remedies. Well, first, you can sometimes uh, say you're going to block a merger and the parties just uh, walk away from each other and that's the end of it. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of times the parties will say, we sell this you, if we sell this with you, um, what about if we divest ourselves of some of the quote-unquote overlapping assets? In other words, where they have assets that compete against each other or regions of, let's say, their company where they uh, compete against each other. And that would be a divestiture, and it has to be, usually they'll assign a monitor or something to make sure the divestiture occurs and, it's, and the settlement is contingent upon that uh, divestiture. Um, that is a favored remedy um, uh, because the department also got into what are called conduct 
remedies. And that's where it's almost like a detailed injunction uh, with a set of restrictions. Uh, you know, you can't do this or you have to deal with these parties on a fair basis. You can't discriminate against these parties. Uh, used a lot in the telecom world uh, when Comcast, for example, made its big acquisition of uh, cable facilities. Uh, this was there was a conduct-based solution. Now there's been a lot of sort of uh, negative reaction to conduct-based solutions because the department ends up regulating conduct, and they have to do it through the use of the contempt power under the order. So uh, there's been greater support. Last administration, Macon Delrahim, who was the AAG, Assistant Attorney General, uh, came out with a speech back then and said, look, I'm not going to be using conduct. I'm going to use divestiture. I like structural changes, not conduct base. So um, and that's what Jonathan Canner uh, talked about in his speech. In a, if I could just take a moment to sort of set the stage for his speech, it was really interesting. Uh, he he uh, is a member of the New York Bar, and so he was really honored to sort of uh, speak to the New York Bar Association. And I think um, he also cited back to his mentor, Justice Justice Jackson, who was a former AAG of the Antitrust Division, also a Supreme Court Justice, uh, and was the, the head of the Antitrust Division during a very active period of the department and the antitrust division in the late 1930s. And a lot of the famous cases, for example, come from that time period. And what he said, uh, and I think we're ready for the perfect storm for antitrust enforcement. And that's why this is an important topic to talk about, I think, for you know, compliance practitioners. Um, because here we had for a, you know, a rarity in our political lives, we had, there's a lot of bipartisan support for now aggressive antitrust enforcement. Republicans don't like the growing power and influence of technology and social media companies, and Democrats are concerned about the growth of the rich, large companies and political influence. And so Cantor received a lot of bipartisan support on his nomination, and now he's ready to take that support for a new and you know sort of significant step in uh, enforcement, we can talk obviously a little bit more about that. But circumstances of this speech and what he talked about, we are—he's really talking about a major, major change in civil enforcement of our antitrust laws, and we'll get into that a little bit more before we get into the Activision uh, Microsoft merger. Mike, one of the things that interested me the most was his, in his talk was his discussion of Section 2 actions. And it's been a long time since I looked at the Section 2 action, uh, but that, as I recall, is basically just says you're too big. And that was the first right. action brought uh, under the Sherman Act way back when, when they busted up Standard Oil. But when I was uh, in the corporate world, that was a concern. And the number we always focused on was somewhere between 65 and 70%. So if you had above 70% market share, uh, we felt like that would draw Department of Justice and our trust division uh, scrutiny. But if you kind of stayed 65 or below, you you were probably okay. Um, is First of all, is that analysis correct? And is, is there a change that we're now just going to say, hey, you're a $300 trillion corporation. You're too big. We're going to bust you up. Well, look, the famous monopolization cases we all know. 
uh, AT&T in the 1970s, uh, and then we had Microsoft in the 1990s. Uh, both monopolization cases under Section 2. Uh, and now we have Google, uh, which was brought under Section 2, uh, and Facebook to a certain extent, uh, which more like a post-talk after murders their acquisitions of uh, various companies. So, uh, and look, what he's saying and the real mindset that's going to happen is He's he's brought, he's defining the antitrust laws in a way that promotes and maximizes competition, because his whole spiel and his whole framework is: look, the purpose of the antitrust laws is to push competition as in you know the way to better consumers. Labor gets to share in it, hopefully some, and consumers do better, and we innovate. And what he's saying is the purpose of the antitrust laws is not just to stop uh, sort of collusion or, you know, price fixing activity or cartel activity or agreements that restrain competition. I'm here to tell you that's this is what he told the New York Bar Association. We're going for a broader concept and we're going to redefine this under the law competition. So. The old rule, and you know, I know the rule of thumb that you're talking about, 65, 70%. He may, what he's opening the door to is saying, look, I may see monopolization or something close to monopolization at lower levels where there's not enough competition depending upon how that market's operating. Because if I need to restrain somebody or break them up and in that way increase competition, consumers will benefit. And we'll innovate more. So keeping the a lot of more sort of the, you know, the, the traditional guidance that came from the 80s from the Robert Bork Antitrust Paradox Revolution, uh, which was a book that when the first day I started in the antitrust division, they said, here's your Bible. Now go and study it. And that Bible is about ready to be thrown out. Uh, by Jonathan Canner. It's been whittled away through the years, but Jonathan Canner wanted to start anew and goes back to the 1930s purposes uh, to look at these types of uh, issues. It's really fascinating. I mean, this is just an incredible uh, movement, and I think you're going to see the antitrust laws being used in a variety of contexts that we never thought about before. Well, you know, I had a couple of thoughts there. So both of you now, you've mentioned the, the magic number was somewhere around 65 to 70%. But my very first question is, I was listening to you, I think Cantor is now trying to expand the answer for it. Too big at 65 or 70% for what? To harm the consumer? Well, you know, there isn't any consumer harm in terms of pricing for a lot of these services because the services are free. And so he is saying it's more like uh, consumer, not consumer harm, but employee harm because you can't get good wages. Uh, it could be innovation harm because most startups now might be looking basically not to conquer the world or develop a good company. They are starting a company to get acquired, which therefore means that the services they're going to create are going to be fed into somebody else. And then so we're looking at diversity of services, you know, and how would we preserve that? And maybe, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this is much more of a EU way of looking at 
big business now. It's more about competition than it is about consumer harm. That's probably going to be a difficult concept for some people to get their head around. Um, And the other big thing I am fascinated by is how it is big tech that is driving this. Um, I suspect if a lot of really Republicans, if you put them on the spot, do you agree with Cantor's ideas to bust up Facebook and Google and other tech giants? They'd say, yeah, sure. Well, now you've opened the door to what about busting up the monopoly or the cartel in the funeral home business, which exists in the United States. Most funeral homes are now owned by a very few number of giant funeral home businesses. So are we okay with using this principle to bust up the funeral home industry? And I would bet Republicans would probably say, I've never really stopped to think about it. They were looking at big tech as being the boogeyman's And this is a great club from Jonathan Cantor. Let's bash him over the head. Once the club is picked up, I don't know that we're going to put it down. And there's a lot of other industries where suddenly they could find themselves in awkward positions. That's the other big thought that came to my mind as I was reading the speech. And let let me follow up on that because I think that's a great point because the Republicans here are making a deal and I think their support of Cantor is, yes, go bash Google, go bash Apple, Facebook, whatever, whoever you want to out there as long as they're in California, okay? Yep. Um, and keep doing that. But when they are talking about now rewriting the merger guidelines and the vertical guidelines uh, and to inject all of these concepts into there. Uh, the only thing that's going to be holding them back is a lack of resources because the antitrust division has lost resources over the last 10 years. Well, guess what Jonathan Cantor wants to do? He's up there in Congress right now, you know, to get more resources. And he's going to say, you want me to bash the tech companies? I need, you know, staffs of 10 lawyers on each case. And he's going to get the money. And you're exactly right. When he starts to turn towards some of the sort of non-tech businesses like manufacturing, like whatever it is, and starts to apply this same these same rules, watch out. Because the Chamber of Commerce is going to be beating a door to uh, the White House, and they're going to be you know giving money to Republican candidates, which they probably would do anyways, but they're probably going to give more money now once they see this activated DOJ and FTC. That is a an absolute good model to, to look at. That's where we're, we're heading towards the EU Commission approach towards competition. It's not, you know, consumer welfare is there, you know, can somebody raise the prices by 10% and not change, uh, you know, and nobody would switch to a competitor. That's not going to be the analysis. It's going to be a gestalt type of thing. What type of, you know, do we really have competition? Uh, you know, can T-Mobile really merge into AT&T? What would be the impact of that? Those kind, kinds of mergers, which had a chance uh, in the past administration, are going to be dead on arrival when they show up in this administration. Um, and don't forget here that we have Lena Khan at the FTC, mm-hmm. who, by the way, is trying to inject the FTC, not just into mergers, but data, privacy all of these things, and she survived the, you know, initial sort of blip she had on her political scale, 
but she has an agenda which is going to be way beyond mergers uh, in terms of, you know, using Section 5, as they say, for a real, um, you know, pro-consumer bent uh, type of approach. And they're going to be two peas in a pod right now. Now, maybe she'll end up being the, the bashing point for the Republicans and the business interests, but Jonathan Cantor is going to be, and he knows exactly what he's trying to accomplish here. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and be right back. Mike, you brought up uh, Lena Khan and the FTC, and I wanted to ask a couple of questions about uh, their role and um, kind of the focus they've taken. But could perhaps we start with the concept of a monopsony? What is a monopsony as opposed to a monopoly? And how or why is that such a huge sea change in the way the FTC or any other regulator would look at anti-competitive issues? Well, the monopsony is like the flip side of a monopoly. It, it is when you have a concentration or, let's say, a sole buyer uh, who then can exercise, um, you know, anti-competitive influence over price and quantity from uh, suppliers. So some people, I'm not going to, uh, I'll just use this as, as an example. Take Walmart, for example. There are a lot of people who fight to get their and will do anything to get their products carried by Walmart. Well, Walmart, you know, sits like a king in Bentonville, Arkansas, and people come down and make presentations to them to try to get their products into there. And they'll renegotiate and push their prices down from these suppliers. And that's when you get into really interesting cases. Now, the other sort of classic one that's going on right now in terms of criminal prosecution which is really interesting, is that the antitrust division is bringing criminal cases against companies that engage in price fixing over wages uh, and price fixing over or no poach agreements in terms of hiring employees. And what are they use? These are illegal monopsony agreements uh, prohibited by Section 1 of the Sherman Act and are therefore a crime. They just indicted six individuals uh, in the aerospace and uh, in uh, engineering industry uh, for price fixing in terms of uh, don't give out this, you know, don't pay your uh, outsourced aerospace engineers this much, keep your price at this level or we'll punish you. So that's, we're seeing a lot more focus on sort of the buy side of uh, market power. A lot of times people for years ago thought that cable had in, uh, a monopsony power, cable television systems, over the satellite delivered uh, video services. And uh, there was a lot of work done at that time in the antitrust division on that. So that I'm not surprised to see the monopsony power issue come up because uh, to me it was something that was going to absolutely um, you know, increase in focus under any regime. So, Matt, now that we've given a little background, or excuse me, Mike, now that we've given a little background, maybe we could turn to the Microsoft attempts uh, to acquire uh, Activision Blizzard. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it would create the third largest gamer 
uh, in the United States. And uh, I can't remember the market share they would have at this point, but uh, what antitrust issues might you see? And I, you know, uh, I would start with, look, I don't know what their market share is going to be, but I do think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to this merger. Um, and I hate to show my ignorance on the tech side, um, but I think there's this development and innovation that's being talked about as the metaverse. And there's concern that the merger of these two could have an impact on the future development of that industry and the competition that could develop. And this is right in the bailiwick of where we're talking about, um, you know, the kind of concerns. They don't necessarily actively compete against each other in a major way. They're not like, you know, 30% each of the gaming market. But Microsoft's platform has to be viewed as, you know, a, a very powerful platform. And once you mix in, you know, Blizzard and Activision into that, that's going to be an interesting issue. Um, the other issue that obviously we've been all following the headlines about the misconduct and the, and the CEO's performance. And, you know, there's, uh, I don't think this is going to become an antitrust concern, but I certainly think it's a PR issue that has to be looked at as well in terms of Activision uh, in their sort of CEO misconduct and then becoming part of the Microsoft uh, family uh, in that sense. But I think it's going to, we're going to see absolutely an antitrust investigation and who knows where that will lead. But what are your thoughts, Matt? What do you think? Well, I have a couple of uh, thoughts about just how interesting a lot of these new antitrust issues could get. So for everybody listening, the three of us are recording this on Monday, January 31st, when Sony just announced that it is acquiring game maker Bungie. Now, I am not a big gamer, so I don't know exactly what games Bungie is uh, puts out, but I can't help but think... This does not help Microsoft is that, oh, well, and now our other bigger competitor is also acquiring a game maker where at the same time, Jonathan Cantor is running around talking about market consolidation to a few big players and an event that is largely out of Microsoft's control. It can't decide what Sony's uh, market strategies and acquisitions are or aren't going to be, but you know, did Sony do this in response to Microsoft, but could that then put Microsoft in a worse light because it looks like market consolidation is still happening, which is exactly what the DOJ doesn't want? Those are going to be questions that people have to think about a lot these days. Uh, My other question would be, even if the American regulators allow this merger, which if I were betting I would bet that this merger is going to happen. I would not bet a large amount of money because I'm not confident it will. I just, I kind of sort of think it probably will. That's about as you know confident as I am. I'm not clear that the EU wouldn't somehow figure out that it has some reason to intercede here and say, no, we're not going to allow this, or we are going to tie up the privacy constraints in so many knots that this is just going to make it not worth the headache for Microsoft. That could happen. Could Japan's regulators wade in and basically do their hometown favorite Sony a favor, which I don't know that they would do that. I don't necessarily think that that would be a very admirable thing, but could it happen? Potentially. 
And these are the sort of questions you're going to have to start to think about if you're doing big mergers now. Um, you know, I wrote about this once before, but how does this merger really matter for ethics and compliance people? It's probably just an amazing thing to see, but a lot of these issues are above your paid grade. They're more for the board setting strategy, the CEO setting strategy, the general counsel. But these are going to be big strategic variables that suddenly hang over mergers in a way that they never have before. That's going to affect a lot of companies and what they do if this comes to pass. Um, and then to the point about, yeah, Activision's corporate culture is a mess. That's true. Microsoft probably has the resources to do it. And, you know, I think that, you know, how could they make it worse, really? So I, I'm actually pretty bullish that Microsoft would be able to make this situation better. But uh, that seems to be the kind of the sideshow to what's really going to go on with antitrust issues here. Well, one thing I would I was going to say, I, I get it. Uh, I, um, I do think there's going to be some sort of um, examination of the esports Mark, you know, I know they're esports, and I totally agree with you about the Sony. I mean, Sony is bigger than Activision, and Sony's acquisition here raises real issues. Again, uh, this was probably the worst timing that could ever happen to Microsoft, yeah. because you don't want the big player like Sony coming in and now buying, you know, uh, bulking up. Uh, and uh, now this gives the department to say, well, let me think of scenarios under which uh, Microsoft could collude with uh, Sony now, okay, or lessen competition with Sony now. And, uh, you know, we're watching sort of the consolidation of an industry that has so far not been super consolidated, the gaming industry, but now we're seeing it get far worse with these two deals. So, uh, you know, Microsoft is probably banging its head against the wall right now, have, you know, and Sony outmaneuvered them in a sense. Um, but on the other hand, Sony may be buying itself a second request, you know, for documents to slow down their acquisition from DOJ, because I think that's going to happen. Both of these deals are going to be examined. There's kind of like the big deal rule at the, at the uh, division where like with a big deal with all this PR are going to have you open up a case and look at it. The question of whether that turns into anything is quite another matter because look, you know, not quote unquote in the gaming industry. So it's kind of like, okay, we're, we're opening their platform up uh, to Activision and Blizzard and content and all that. But, you know, Microsoft is a big enough player that they can push people around here and that's what's going to get the department interested, I think. Um, so I, you're exactly right, though, Matt. This Sony deal is just, uh, it, it couldn't have happened at a worse time. You know, Mike, I did have one other question that I've been rolling around. Where are the federal courts going to come down on this? And in particular, if Microsoft pushed this all the way to the Supreme Court, I tend to be a pretty cynical person about the Supreme Court these days that uh, I'm wondering how many judges yeah. out there just might say, nope, I don't care. We're not going to allow this new view of antitrust. I mean, you know, assuming the DOJ says, no, we're not going to allow the merger, and Microsoft says, fine, we're going to take this to court, where do the courts go with something like this? Well, and that's that's a really interesting question because, look, look what happened when the department tried to stop the, uh, the uh, AT&T Time Warner deal. They lost. And uh, 
and you know they have a pretty good record on merger enforcement in general. Uh, that was just a high-profile loss. But what's interesting is Jonathan Cantor's speech, you know, talked about the great case law that came out in the 1930s, Coney, Vacuum, all these, you know, famous cases that get cited in antitrust uh, parlance. And what he's saying is to the extent I get the room within the case law where I can define in a more granular level through guidelines and our policies and this and that, I'm going to take full advantage of it. Now, you're right. He could hit a reactionary judge who's going to say, look, I, I see the case law. I see how you're doing this, but here's where I'm going to fault you uh, on terms of your competitive analysis. And you can rest assured, like the rule at the Supreme Court is, if, it, if there's a business interest case, you know how they're going to come out. Yeah. Um, the business interests win, you know, hands down, they have the best record before the Supreme Court, even before the last two justices were put on, uh, or even three. Um, they were there, it's viewed as a pro business court in general. And uh, so, you know, I think you're, you're on to something. Um, and we may see a more activist sort of appellate bench because remember, uh, the last administration put a lot of judges in there. Uh, and a lot of uh, uh, and right now the new administration is trying to counteract all that and they're getting a lot of judges in as well. But it's right now it's going to be interesting to see how the courts come out because these concepts are not well defined in the case law. It really the real law gets made almost by the department and then they try to you know withstand uh, judicial group and we may be a more active you know judicial pushback. Mike, one of the, I think that was one of the interesting things I uh, found in Kantner's speech. He actually invited judicial scrutiny to help develop the contours of some of these concepts. Let me take things in a little bit different direction, a little competing interest here. Uh, monopoly, monopsy, workers, wages, competition, innovation. And then we added with Microsoft and Activism Blizzard, a corrupt culture. We have an SEC investigation into uh, basically human capital. We have a Department of Labor investigation. We have state investigations in California. When there are multiple competing interests inside the Department of Justice uh, and with other U.S. agencies, such as the Securities and Exchange Commission and perhaps the Department of Labor, how do those competing interests get, get worked out? And maybe could you start with uh, the Department of Justice uh, and then maybe expand it out to other agencies? Well, the, the, when there's overlap, there's good coordination. Let me give you an example. In the telecom industry, for example, they will coordinate closely with uh, the FCC, for example, the Federal Communications Commission. Um, they may not agree with them in the end, but they will definitely coordinate as a regulated industry. But I don't see as much of, um, and it'll be interesting, is uh, the coordination, the division, I've always told you, Tom, you know, they refer to them, and the division is the division within the Justice Department, not the Civil Rights Division, not the Criminal Division, it's the division. And there was a history there of very sort of top-notch lawyers and that sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it arrogance, but they're very proud. 
I've never seen them and I've never been a part of any type of coordination activity with the SEC. And I'm kind of curious because we already have seen in the criminal division, for example, the FCPA uh, enforcers uh, coordinate, fraud uh, coordinates. We now see in the National Security Division coordination on export controls and economic sanctions. What we haven't seen is coordination on these types of issues. At least I'm not aware of it that much. And you raise a really interesting point. Are we going to start to see that? And are we going to start to see, particularly in monopoly cases or, you know, monopolization cases, because it's a single firm and it's not necessarily a merger, but are we going to start to see the SEC? And then again, Jonathan Kanner also referred to labor what are the impact of what's the impact of um, a merger on labor markets? So all of a sudden, instead of having two big, let's say, labor purchasers, we're going to have it go down to one. And we used to get routinely opposition from labor unions who would say, "Look, if you do this, this is the impact that's going to occur on the labor markets." Well, most traditional antitrust enforcement did not take that into account at all. We would say, thank you very much, respond you know, professionally, but nothing would change. He's opening the door to the Department of Labor or labor markets or the where we could have the impact on unions and unionization attempts uh, as a consideration in antitrust enforcement. And in other words, not just the impact on the consumer, but what's the impact on the employees? What's the impact on the labor market? And that to me raises a whole host of interesting issues. Um, and I think he's gonna look for target cases on these issues where it's gonna be good facts and he's gonna try to make good law out of good facts uh, for the division. And um, be it the SEC, be it regulatory agencies. Uh, you know, can you imagine him going to the CFTC when you have two, let's say, commodity exchange firms merging? Or, you know, a, a there was years ago a market merger, you know, the uh, platforms for derivatives, and they merged. And all of a sudden, we could see an antitrust enforcement uh, action that comes about in that merger, which would necessarily sort of coordinate with CFC or whatever regulatory agency would be relevant. You, you, you've opened up a really broad area, Tom, with your question of things that, that Cantor can do. And he seems like an energetic fellow. Tom, if I could follow up with two thoughts there. Um, I, I would not be terribly alarmed or concerned about the SEC with uh, follow-on or joint probes with antitrust because, you know, fundamentally the, the SEC is all about, are you misleading investors? Okay. So in that case, you could throw in another disclosure in the MDNA that, oh yeah, we're really big and you know, the Justice Department might investigate us on antitrust. And essentially you could kind of get over that with the SEC, I think. Um, although I think Mike raises an excellent point about labor and the Department of Labor, especially the Department of Labor currently headed by Marty Walsh, an ex-union guy from Boston, um, who I think would be very interested to talk about unionization rates and how they might get affected in a large merger, um, or even 
if we want to get back to the ethics and compliance angle here, if you are a business where you say that you value people so much and you respect people and you hire the best talent and you pay them what they're worth, and by the way, now we're going to merge with two of our big rivals so that we're going to be the only business in town and we're going to have a uniform salary for the entire industry. Uh, how are you going to square that with the ethical values that you might be preaching on the feel-good side of being a corporation? Uh, I think that could poise, raise some difficult PR issues as well. Uh, so there's a whole lot of other concerns there. And I think Mike raises a really good point about the National Labor Relations Board, the Department of Labor. Uh, who, we haven't even talked about state regulatory authorities and non-compete agreements, which can be enforced at the state level. And there's all sorts of ways that that could quickly get very sticky. You know what? Uh, and you raise a great point too, uh, Matt. What about the state AGs? We've seen the state AGs, for example, come in um, anti, you know, uh, sort of anti-competitive uh, investigations. For example, of the generic pharmaceutical agent uh, industry, they brought a massive class action case against you know uh, twenty companies. Now, I think what you're going to see is maybe even greater coordination with the state AGs and the feds uh, in other areas. I mean, they've, they will come in on some mergers and try to block it as well. But we may see civil enforcement is where we get into really interesting issues. Visa and MasterCard, for example, were, you know, there was a case brought against them years ago on a civil, you know, enforcement grounds that can have really significant ramifications in terms of the fees they were charging uh, and the interchange fees and whether or not there was collusion. Healthcare, similarly, Blue Cross Blue Shield, civil enforcement matters in terms of uh, non-competition uh, um, that were put in Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, provisions with their suppliers being doctors and other things like that. So th there's so many areas for civil enforcement that could be, you know, after all, I, you know, I did work years ago on the AT&T case and you can see how well and how popular that was, but you know, that those are the types of things that they can do with civil enforcement, breaking up under monopolization, bringing a civil monopolization case and breaking up, uh, you know, a, a, a somebody with 50% market share, 60%, that's too much. Competition is too little. We want more competition. So the whole, the, all the mindset, Tom, is, is changing. And I, I have to tell you that one of the things that I urge chief compliance officers to look at is we need, is to bring, they're going to need to have a greater focus now in antitrust compliance. Too long it's been the province of sort of, you know, some of the lawyers who, you know, take it on themselves and, and run it. I think chief compliance officers have to bring their skills to this set of risks and they have to start looking at situations because they're going to get broad. When, when Matt's talking about, you know, labor implications, uh, we're going to need, we're going to need a lot more than just sort of, um, you know, a narrow traditional antitrust analysis. Final thought for Mike is just thank you for joining us. I think it's been an excellent addition here, but uh, I still, I will be fascinated to see how this all plays out because if this sticks, that 
Jonathan Cantor shifts us to a more EU-style view around competition as opposed to just consumer harm, that will eventually become a really big deal, especially for companies that uh, traffic in consumer data or large collections of data or you process it. You know, in the fullness of time, this is going to become a transformational thing if it sticks. So I will be curious to see if it does. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Also, I would like you to check out my latest special podcast series, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where with business columnist Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial, we take a look at the Enron trial itself. Uh, This year is the 15th anniversary of the trial, and we thought it was important to follow up on last year's commentaries about the collapse of Enron with the uh, looking at the trial. I know you will find it a great podcast series. Check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network, iTunes, or any other place that you listen to your podcast. Hope you'll join Matt and I again next week for another edition of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.